Thanks uh, for joining everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure today to welcome one of my uh, former co-authors, maybe a future co-author again at some point. <laughs> uh, Josh Coombs from uh, the University of Colorado Boulder. And Josh is going to tell us about some work that he's done with some of our other Australian friends on uh, bosonic codes. So please take it away, Josh. Yeah, so thanks for having me. Um, and I think both uh, Anna and Ben are in the, the Zoom audience, so uh, this will be interesting. Um, at the end of the talk, or maybe Ben can post it, um, Ben's given a similar talk on this, which is, gonna, which is much more technical than the one, the talk that I'm gonna give today. So if you want further details, you can check out Ben's talk on YouTube. Uh, so I think in this talk, I'm gonna focus on introducing um, bosonic codes for about a third of the talk. And this is because they're, I'd say, pretty unfamiliar to most people. And then the middle third of the talk, I'm going to talk about this joint work with um, Anna and Ben, who are at uh, uh, Sydney University and RMIT University. And this was recently published in PRX. And it's about bosonic codes that have a rotation symmetry. And uh, the figure you can see here in the middle of the screen is a state that has an n equals three discrete rotation symmetry. And this is actually an, uh, a uh, plus x eigenstate for uh, one of these rotation symmetric codes. Um, and then I think at the, the end of the talk, if we have time, I will discuss things, uh, well, future questions and areas where perhaps people in the audience can try and contribute to this field. There's a lot to be done um, because it's a pretty uh, unexplored area. Um, yeah, okay. So uh, I guess the other thing I should say is that uh, some fraction of these slides have been stolen from Ben. And uh, oh, why is that not progressing? Okay, there we go. Um, so for universal quantum computation, it's pretty clear that uh, Hilbert space is one of the primary resources. And this is because if you have a very small Hilbert space, it's easy to simulate these things. Um, and this is true even in the presence of, the, in, of noise, uh, perhaps more so because we need to use uh, Hilbert space to encode our quantum information uh, into an error correcting code to protect against the noise. And so there's many approaches to this. There's error suppression techniques, but at least within uh, error correction, there's two uh, approaches that have become pretty standard. Uh, the first one is to take a bunch of finite dimensional systems and take your quantum information and spread it out over those uh, finite dimensional systems. And you use an error correcting code to do this and the uh, sort of the, um, the excess Hilbert space that you have left over from encoding is then used to uh, detect and correct the errors. An alternative approach is to consider a system that has an infinite dimensional Hilbert space to start with, or at least a very large one, and then encode your information into that. And a really good example of this from uh, uh, first year quantum mechanics is the harmonic oscillator. So in this figure here, you can see the uh, harmonic oscillator and these dashed lines here are the uh, energy eigenstates and some associated wave functions. And so there's two 
fairly convenient ways to think about the harmonic oscillator. First is about in, in this uh, energy eigenbasis where you have um, a discrete spectrum, but it's uh, uh, still infinite, it's countably infinite. An alternative approach is to think about the, um, the operators and states on this harmonic oscillator in terms of um, things like the position and momentum operator, which have a continuous spectrum. And so you can construct states and operators by taking superpositions or mixtures of the eigenstates of, say, the position operator. Um, so the, the important thing to note is that uh, it doesn't matter which way you construct your error correcting code, you have to answer a number of questions which are listed down here. And these are the, the questions of like, how do I encode it? How do I manipulate my information? And finally, how do I correct the errors? And probably most importantly is this number five, which is at the end of it, once we've finished uh, encoding and decoding and correcting, um, did we actually gain anything from uh, performing error correction? And uh, so we're gonna, the, the, the middle part of the talk is going to be stepping through these points one through five um, in gory detail for the case of uh, a bosonic code that has a rotation symmetry in phase space. Uh, okay, so there's many ways you could uh, encode information into a harmonic oscillator or into a, a bosonic mode. And conceptually, the, the simplest way to think about this is picking two orthogonal wave functions or approximately orthogonal wave functions, and then they form a two-dimensional subspace of the larger Hilbert space. And one that is going to be useful later uh, for comparing the more exotic things is what we call the trivial encoding. And so in the trivial encoding, you uh, take the vacuum and the first excited state of the harmonic oscillator and encode your information into these, these two levels here. Um, now, this is a perfectly valid error correcting code. It's not necessarily a good one, um, but it's probably better to think of this as just a, a, a physical or raw encoding of the information. Uh, right. So once you have these two sort of orthogonal states that define your code space, you, um, this is your bosonic code over here. You need to um, protect your information against the, well, you're hoping that the code will protect your information against the typical errors in these um, bosonic systems. And those typical errors are loss, heating, and dephasing. So loss should be pretty familiar to, to everyone. If you think about something like a, a pendulum or a mechanical oscillator where uh, friction will, for example, cause energy relaxation and uh, eventually stop the motion. And this is the same kind of error as loss in the uh, bosonic context. And then contact with a hot bath that's heating. And then dephasing is kind of like a mixture of rotations in phase space. So these are the three very natural and dominant errors in bosonic systems. So you're hoping that whatever code that you design uh, will be able to correct these errors. And normally we think about, uh, uh, say, qubit codes discretizing the continuous errors that we get. Uh, it's a slightly different, and we'll get into those details um, in the next section. But there is some, oh, there is some discrete. Why is that going backwards now? <laughs> There we are. There is some discretization errors and what people, uh, uh, sorry, discretization of the errors and what people are imagining doing, at least initially, 
is concatenating these um, continuous variable codes with um, qubit codes and um, hoping that that would be part of a larger uh, system where you could uh, hope to prove fault tolerance. Um, this is not necessarily the best way to go. Uh, I'd say one of the big lessons we learned in the early 2000s in the error correction literature is that concatenating codes is not a good idea. It's better to design a code from scratch uh, on a larger system. But this is what people are mostly doing. <clears throat> okay, so um, the, the uh, any questions so far? Nope, okay. So, I said that the simplest way to think about uh, codes in this really large Hilbert space is you just pick two states that are orthogonal or approximately orthogonal, and then this forms your uh, error correcting code. The, the problem with this is that there's no guarantee that these states that you picked will have uh, obvious or simple to perform uh, logical uh, gates. And it's not clear that the error correction um, or the, this, the syndrome measurements will be easy to perform. So one possibility is to um, step back um, and look at codes in terms of, or at least look at phase space and um, codes in terms of discrete symmetries. <clears throat> oh, I've got to use that again. And broadly speaking, there's two classes of discrete symmetries, uh, well, two classes of codes that have two kinds of um, discrete symmetries. One is um, a translation symmetry in, in phase space, and another one is uh, rotation symmetry in phase space. So if we take the, um, the uh, harmonic oscillator and look at, uh, at the position wave function, so this is an inner product of some um, general quantum state with a uh, position eigenstate. For the translation symmetric codes, you have these um, superposition of position eigenstates that have some sort of spacing between this lattice. And uh, this superposition go of like this Dirac comb goes from minus infinity to plus infinity. And then the, this, we call this the zero state. And then the one state is simply you take the zero state and translate it by half of this uh, lattice spacing. And then these two states are orthogonal. <clears throat> And for the dual basis code words, for the X basis code words, it's actually easiest to think about those in the momentum representation, but um, and in, in which case they look identical to zero and one, plus and minus look identical to zero and one, except the lattice spacing is different. But to be consistent, we will stay in the position basis and things are also kind of obvious there if you think about um, Oh, that's right. These are called um, GKP codes, uh, these translation symmetric codes. And that's after the, um, after Gottesman, Kataev and Preskill who, who did this paper. Wow, it's almost 19 years ago. Um, so the, the plus state of course is just the equal superposition of zero and one. And then the minus state is, of course you get a minus sign on the, the one. And um, the periodicity you can see here in the position eigenstate in the plus and minus eigenstates is sort of doubled compared to the um, to the um, zero and one code words. <clears throat> and the structure of these um, codes has already told you roughly how the operations work in this. In the in the position representation, we can see that we just have to displace zero to one. 
And then if I was to show you the momentum, I said that it looks very similar. So again, it's going to be a displacement to take you between uh, plus and minus. So for the rotation symmetric codes, there's a very similar story. Um, now we're looking at the um, energy eigenbasis or the Fock basis for a harmonic oscillator. And it starts at zero and goes up to infinity. And I've just chosen a spacing between the um, zero, the uh, amplitudes on the zero code word. And in this case, it's eight. There's eight Fock states between them. And one is I simply take zero and I translate it by half the number of Fock states. So I've translated it by four and those two states are very clearly orthogonal. Um, and then there's a similar story for the plus and minus states. Now we have an equal superposition of zero and one. And so you can just see if I add the green and the, the red that I get this sort of orange. And now this has a spacing of four. Um, so this is actually going to be what we call a code that has an n equals four symmetry. And the minus states uh, have uh, are simply just the plus state with a minus sign on every other, every other um, amplitude. And uh, so these, these, in both of these codes, the, the code words, the uh, amplitudes go out to plus and minus infinity in the translation symmetric, and they go from zero to plus infinity for the rotation symmetric codes. Um, any questions on that? Okay. So unfortunately, those, those wave, function are, wave functions are not normalizable. So we make approximate codes. And the way we do that is by putting a cutoff somehow on the wave function. So you can see here in the translation symmetric codes, what people typically do is they put a Gaussian envelope on top of these uh, delta, this train of delta functions. And this causes the, um, the translation symmetric codes to actually lose their translation symmetry or their perfect translation symmetry. Um, and in the rotation symmetric case, you can see that one way to do it is you put a, an envelope on top of your uh, coefficients in the Fock basis, or simply you can just cut off the coefficients in the Fock basis. And one of the consequences of, of these is that the, um, this inherent uh, noise associated with these codes, which uh, don't show up in qubit codes, for example. Um, right. So here are some Wigner functions for people that like to look at them. Um, so this is a, a full representation of the quantum state. Um, and the, the translation symmetric codes, you can see, have this sort of Gaussian envelope where they're dying off in all directions. And this figure is, is taken from this paper by Victor Albert. It's a really nice review on the area from a few years ago, um, but the area is changing so much that it's already um, uh, missing a few references. And then over here in the rotation symmetric codes, you can see that uh, they, this is an n equals four code. You can see there's a rotation symmetry in these uh, X basis code words, this is the plus state, this is the minus state. And then the Z code words have a, an eightfold rotation symmetry. And um, I think that they, they just look very impressive, but um, yeah. So the, the um, reason why this whole area is, 
well, at least in this section, I want to tell you why everyone is excited about this area. And I think perhaps a reason, maybe some reasons why you might be um, convinced to work on this area. So I think the first reason is it's not just one hardware platform. So traditionally for many um, qubit platforms, you typically have something like this down the bottom here. You have a, a two level atom uh, coupled to some harmonic oscillator and you either use the harmonic oscillator to read out the state of the two level atom or to uh, perform help perform operations on the uh, two level atom. And in these bosonic codes, the role of these two systems is reversed. You're, you are now uh, uh, using your harmonic oscillator to store your quantum information and then you're using your uh, two-level atom typically to manipulate your inf information. So in circuit QED, it looks something like this. You would have like an LC oscillator, and this is your uh, harmonic oscillator. And then you have a nonlinear inductor uh, with a capacitor. So this is an anharmonic oscillator. And this is what you approximate to be a, a, a qubit or two-level atom. And so now we're using this object here to control the states and operators on this um, linear system over here. And say for ion traps, it's you're, you're interested in using the internal degrees of freedom of the ion to control the motional degrees of freedom of the ion. Um, there's also work in progress um, in uh, optical systems. The challenge, it's quite challenging there. There's, um, I, I would hope that perhaps one of the groups puts out an experimental paper in the next couple of years, um, but it, it could be a while. But the, the point here is that there's many systems that this applies to. Another reason why we're excited is that these codes have already achieved what's called break-even. And this has not yet been achieved by any qubit code, even the simple repetition code. Um, so let me explain what that is. So if we just go back to here, remember there was there's essentially two systems. There's a, a, a two-level atom and some sort of harmonic oscillator. Um, in this comparison here, we've got the, the, the green line here, which is the two-level atom. And uh, we can see that we're plotting the process fidelity as a function of time. And we see that the longer and longer we leave the two-level atom, the worse and worse the information is degraded or the, cha the, the channel becomes worse and worse. And then we do this um, trivial encoding that I mentioned earlier. So we take the uh, two-level atom, we uh, transfer the information from the two-level atom into the cavity. This is encoding. And we're encoding it into the zero and one of the the, the vacuum and first excited state of the cavity. And you can see in that encoding operation, you've already taken a little bit of a hit in the channel fidelity here, the difference between these green lines. And that's just generically true for encoding. Um, but then otherwise you can see that the cavity is much higher quality than the, um, the harmonic oscillator is much higher quality than the um, artificial atom. And so its channel fidelity is staying higher for a lot longer. So now we do the additional thing, which is we take our uh, information and instead of encoding it into the, um, the uh, ground state and first excited state of the harmonic oscillator, we encode it into a cat code. And so this is one of these error correcting codes that has a rotation symmetry. And 
we do some number of rounds. Uh, so we do uh, uh, a round of error correction and detection. And we see that actually the fidelity is a little bit worse than this raw encoding, but the longer and longer we leave it, we're starting to see that we're achieving parity with the raw encoding. So that means all of these additional operations of measuring syndromes and applying a feedback uh, operation, uh, sorry, a correction, and then decoding um, has actually given us performance which is comparable to this uh, uncorrected FOC encoding or this, uh, this encoding. Um, so this is called break-even. Then the additional step is if you now post-select on a trivial syndrome, this means that you're either, either getting um, uh, a no error or a logical error. And when you do that, you see that the, the channel fidelity increases. So this is very impressive. It's never been demonstrated in uh, uh, qubit error correcting codes, but it's been demonstrated in multiple um, uh, bosonic codes that have a rotation symmetry. So the other one is uh, this paper here from last year, which is binomial codes. It's a very similar story. The black dots here are the, the artificial atom. The um, blue is the raw harmonic oscillator encode, uh, the zero one encoding of the harmonic oscillator. And then the green is the uh, encoding into the binomial code and the correction. So this is pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> Another reason why we're excited about these bosonic codes um, uh, is that they're believed to be hardware efficient. So I think a few weeks ago you had Tom, Tom Stace speaking in this seminar and uh, he and Anna and, other, and Dat and uh, Clements have been thinking about um, in the context of superconducting qubits, very small circuits that have as their ground states um, uh, uh, code words for an error correcting code. And so we're, we're sort of hoping that we can build things that are error correcting codes with uh, small amounts of hardware. And that's an, another reason why we're excited. The second reason is that we can build qubits that are sort of naturally robust or qubits that have bias noise. And here are two examples. There's, there's a few actually. Um, these are both from experimental papers. Um, I've chosen not to show the, the data, but um, they're basically implementing the same idea, which, it, and one is doing it um, using Hamiltonian evolution, this one here, and one is use, doing it using dissipative evolution. But the essential idea is you create, um, in, say in the Hamiltonian case, you have this parametrically pumped kernel linear oscillator. This is something that uh, Jared Milburn and Kathy Holmes studied uh, way back when. And they showed that there was a degenerate ground space and, um, and uh, subsequent work realized that you could use this to encode quantum information. And so here you see that you have this sort of, um, these two steady states of this um, uh, phase space. In the, in the um, dissipative case, you use two photon dissipation using this as the argument to the Lindblad superoperator. Um, and this again causes you to have these sort of steady states here. And the cool thing about this is that um, the experiment showed that, that they suppressed in this in, uh, particular encoding, they suppressed bit flips exponentially. And so this means that the, uh, at, at a higher level, if you were to concatenate this with a, with a qubit code, you would have highly biased noise and this could be very useful um, for, for uh, you know, 
bootstrapping to get better thresholds and so on. Um, <clears throat> the, the final reason is that there's, a, there's a, a real possibility that we could make the um, uh, error correcting codes autonomous. Uh, the, we could make hardware that makes the uh, entire error correction procedure autonomous. And this started, um, this kind of idea started a long time ago with um, uh, Mohan Saravar and Jared Milburn. But more recently, there's been uh, optical uh, implementation suggested by Hideo Mabuchi's group, where they imagine there's a bunch of atoms in cavities and a bunch of um, controllers. And in this particular circuit here, you just turn on two lasers and it automatically implements the bit flip um, code. And they've generalized this to um, Shaw Bacon codes too. So this can do, they, they have this for. Um, uh, a full quantum error correcting code. Um, unfortunately, in the optical domain, we're limited by the nonlinearities that we have. And so in the superconducting realm, there's these really nice proposals by Elliot Capit, where he takes a small number of nonlinear elements and shows that you can um, have a circuit that does autonomously does error correction. Of course, this means that there's assumptions about the noise and the recovery that are baked into this circuit. Um, Okay, so I think that's um, the end of my pitch on why you should, um, well, why I'm excited about these bosonic codes and sort of going to move into a bit more of the technical stuff now. Um, is there any questions on the first part? Okay. Um, so, in, in the rotation symmetric codes, above all else, we hold the discrete rotation operator sacred. And uh, in particular, we define a, um, uh, the code words of the um, rotation symmetric code to be the plus one eigenstates of this Rn operator here. So uh, it's indexed by this integer n, which specifies the level of symmetry. So if uh, n equals two, then you have a two-fold rotation symmetry. <clears throat> and so this is very much like a stabilizer in qubit codes. And we can give you an explicit way to construct a code. And we start with what we call a primitive. And so here I've taken a blob, which is meant to represent, say, a coherent state. The displacement from the origin is the mean of the coherent state. And then you have the one sigma ellipse. And you take it and you uh, superpose it with rotated versions of itself. And this forms the zero code word. And you can see that even though this has an n equals two symmetry, the zero code word actually has an um, uh, n equals four. It looks like it has an n equals four symmetry. Um, the uh, one state is uh, very similar, except every other, every other one of these uh, superposed states has a minus sign in front of it. And this guarantees that zero and one are orthogonal. <clears throat> now the, the, the dual basis code words are a little bit trickier. So now you have to take a superposition of zero and one, and this will give you the plus state. And you can see just by looking at the colors here that the red and green are gonna cancel. And so this will give you this blue state here. This is the the plus uh, code word for the uh, for an n equals two code, and this one you can actually see has a 
n equals two rotation symmetry. If I rotate it uh, by uh, by pi, it will be uh, back to the same state. Uh, however, the if to construct the minus code word, I now subtract the one, and this gives me a cancellation in a different way. And this is the minus code word here. And the cool thing is you can actually see here that if I rotate by pi on two, that I've actually transformed my plus state into my minus state. And this is um, one of, uh, so actually this rotation by pi on n is the uh, Z operator for our code. The other thing to note is that if I uh, rotate the zero code word or the one code word by any amount, I'm never gonna transform zero into one or one into zero. And that's because I'm, the rotation is never gonna affect the, the phases between this, the lobes of the superposition. Josh. Yeah. Um, when you were talking about rotating this plus into the minus, um, yeah. that's uh, missing a minus sign still, right? Or but do you just then rotate um, and then allow it to delay? Uh, you pick up the minus. So, I mean, what will happen is basically the, um, oh, sorry, maybe I don't understand. You're saying that the... So you've got, um, oh, okay, maybe... Like oh, okay, sorry. So it's, I, it's, thought there was an, an, I thought there was a global phase there, but, the, but uh, that's not, it, it's, it's not, it's... Uh, it's okay. not, yeah, yeah. No, it, it just, it's, um, it's kind of magic. It just works. Yeah, okay. Well, it's not magic. It, yeah, it's designed to work this way. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, sorry, yeah. I misunderstood. Thanks. No, no, I, I mean, I got confused myself, so... Um, okay. Uh, so, so um, the thing that this primitive state lets you do is essentially by choosing a different primitive state, you can choose uh, where you can design different codes and these codes might be better for um, different channels. So as an example, um, here we've got the cat codes, which are essentially, so these are n equal four codes um, and the red are the plus states and the blue are meant to indicate the, the minus states. So up here, it's like a it's like a cartoon picture. I've not uh, here's the proper Wigner function here, and you can see that there's all these crazy interference fringes. So in these sort of ball and stick diagrams, I'm really just representing the the um, the um, classical parts of the the um, wave function. And um, so here, you know, we're basically taking a coherent state and rotating and superposing it with itself. You can imagine squeezing that coherent state. So then you would have a squeezed cat code. And then there's these other codes which were um, proposed in this PRX paper down here by Michael et al. And these are called binomial codes. They're, um, they're known to be very performant. And then finally, you could take, for example, just the equal superposition in the, in the, um, of the uh, Fox states and superpose that with itself. And we call this a Peg Barnett code, um, which is related to the um, eigenstates of the Peg Barnett operator, which is the um, Hermitian phase operator on a truncated uh, Fox space. Um, so one of the things that happens when you impose a discrete rotation symmetry is that actually uh, imposes structure in the Fock basis. 
So here you can see that uh, if we have a rotation symmetry of um, two, then we actually see that the Z basis code words have a um, spacing of two N. So in this case, it's four. And what the primitive does is the, prim the primitive tells you the amplitude of these different, uh, these different coefficients. Well, the, the, um, the weight and the phase of these different coefficients. Um, now, I guess the other thing to point out here is that you can see that if you had, um, if we start looking forward towards uh, error correction, if you had a loss event, and let's naively model that as just every state in the harmonic oscillator ladder gets lowered by one, then for this n equals two code, if I could measure uh, photon number perfectly, then I could still distinguish the um, logical zero, an error occurring on a logical zero and an error occurring on a logical one. <clears throat> so this leads us to uh, thinking about how to make our encoded qubit. And it's actually pretty simple. So the Z basis, um, the, the measurements are just photon counting. And if there's been no error, all you need to do is check whether you're on the, um, the, uh, the this uh, green grid or, or this red grid. And so you can think of this as just checking the photon number mod some number. Uh, of course, you'd want to do this destructively. So you'd need to do um, couple this to some ancillary system and measure that system. Um, but to do an X basis measurement, it's a little bit trickier. Um, uh, actually, what you need to do is distinguish between say in the N equals two case, these two states here and one way to do that would be to perform this thing called a phase measurement. And this is um, a technically challenging thing to do um, with, uh, but it has been done experimentally. <clears throat> and the problem with these phase measurements is there's no operator, that, no, there's no Hermitian operator that corresponds to a phase operator to phase. And that means uh, but however, there is a generalized measurement, so a POVM, and that means that uh, there's no eigenstates of phase, so that means you'll never have a perfect phase measurement. So there's always this inherent uh, phase error or embedded phase error that's really determined by the primitive that you use. Um, so there's uh, the next thing to talk about is how do we manipulate this quantum information? And we've already seen that the rotation by pi on the pi, uh, pi on n is the z gate. So if you project, if you if you use the projector of uh, the code space projector, you can take this operator, project it into the code space, and see that it is in fact the logical z operator. Um, <clears throat> And so it will have these relations down here if you apply them to the zero code words. And, uh, and we saw that the Z operator actually flipped the, the, Z the X basis code words as it should. The tricky one is actually what's the X operator. And it turns out to be this horrendous thing here, which is um, doing exactly what we said earlier. It's taking the zero state and shifting it up by one or shifting it up by uh, n. 
So this was an n equals two code, so it's shifting this state up by two. And again, if you take the projector onto the code space, you can figure out that this is indeed logical z, uh, sorry, logical x. The problem with that is this is only approximately true. And that's because um, unless you have one of these codes that has um, flat coefficients in Fox space, then translating the uh, zero state up here up to two, you will also have to reweight the, the amplitude. And this is, um, this is uh, only gonna be uh, possible to do, well, it's, it's very difficult to do. So we're gonna try and avoid doing that um, when we talk about our, um, our logical uh, manipulations. Um, the final thing to mention is the number phase trade-off. And so you can see here that um, if we increase the spacing between um, zero and one, that we can increase the resilience to loss events or increase the resilience to heating events. The problem is that uh, as you increase that spacing, it means that the uh, spacing in phase space here becomes smaller and smaller. So this is an n equals four code here. I've depicted the, you know, this is the plus code word and this is the minus, the, the minus code word. And on the previous slide, this was an n equals two. So on this one here, roughly you could think that um, if I wanted to bin these two, I could draw a line at, uh, what is that, pi on four. And if I, had a, if I saw a rotation error where I was rotating up from the plus state to, towards pi on four, then I might apply a correction back down to the plus state, for example. But you can see in this code here, uh, we're gonna have to look at an angle like pi on eight to make that sort of decision. So as we increase our resilience to loss errors, we're decreasing our resilience to rotation errors. And so there's this number, uh, number phase trade-off uh, which is sort of characterized by this relationship here. Uh, yeah. So um, initially when we were, we were um, trying to cook up error correcting schemes, we were thinking of um, doing doing pretty wild things like uh, trying to measure the trying to measure the um, z basis uh, the z basis errors and then apply a correction and then try to measure the x basis errors um, and apply a correction and it was really hairy and mostly because the uh, x operator is very unphysical and at some point, um, Anna realized that there was a really nice way to do this that avoided all of it. And that's what I'm going to explain now. So first of all, we, for uh, universal quantum computation, we uh, use this weird gate set, which is we prepare plus states. Um, we do uh, X basis measurement, which is going to be our phase measurement, uh, uh, S gates, uh, CZ, and then to get universality, we need to inject a T state. And there's various easy gates that uh, come from the fact that our code has rotation symmetry, but probably the one to highlight is what we call the CROT gate. And it's a rotation controlled rotation. And the physical implementation is via a cross current nonlinearity. And the cool thing about this particular gate is that it can interface code, uh, 
uh, two different codes. So as an example, um, you could do a logical um, CZ gate between a co uh, between one qubit which is in a n equals two cat code and another qubit which is in a uh, n equals seven uh, binomial code. So this is pretty cool. Um, and I think it's a, it's a great feature of these kinds of codes. Um, and we said that you'll notice in this universal gate set, we don't have um, an X gate. And so uh, actually a lot of our gates, although they could be implemented with unitaries, we uh, implement via teleportation, but um, I'll probably uh, skip over that. Um, so with continuous variable uh, error correction, the syndromes are uh, often richer than the sort of binary syndromes that we get out of qubit codes. So in the case of our phase measurement, the syndrome that we get is a real number. And um, uh, to the, the FOC measurements, of course, and the, the uh, photon number measurements are uh, 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 integers, but we will not be doing them. And like I said, we're going to avoid doing these um, FOC, FOC space displacements because they're um, very unphysical. So the trick is to steal um, an idea from CNIL and generalize this CNIL style error correction to um, uh, codes with rotation symmetry. And we're going to deal with uh, error correction rather than fault tolerance. So our ancillary states that we use are going to be pure, uh, pure states. And the idea is we're going to use this teleportation circuit and consider propagating an arbitrary error um, uh, through this circuit and seeing what a correction is. And so what happens here is we take a operator basis for the Hilbert space and um, look at how one of these errors propagates through the circuits, through the circuit. And it turns out that all we need to do is these uh, two phase measurements. And then based on the outcome of these two phase measurements, we might have an, uh, a possible outcome dependent um, Pauli, uh, which we would then have to correct. Um, uh, the other thing to mention is that the gates that we're using in the circuit, especially CROT, have very nice um, properties that the errors don't amplify. They, and they spread in a, in a way that you can calculate. Um, so I'm going to show you some numerics now uh, that looks at uh, performing error correction with this circuit and compares that to an optimal um, uh, an optimal error correction procedure. And so here we're interested in the uh, loss and dephasing channel. So this is uh, energy re relaxation. And then this is some sort of uh, superposition or mixture of rotations in phase space. And the, um, uh, the thing to note about these plots is that the, this kappa here, uh, we take our master equation, we integrate it up to some time t, and uh, kappa times t is like the noise strength. So if you think of a qubit channel, this would be kappa t is kind of like p for depolarizing. And so lower errors are on the left and higher errors are on the right. And then we're plotting the logical channel infidelity on the y-axis. And we've got two different codes here. This is this cat code and the binomial code. Um, 
Now, of course, we want to see if our error correction is performing um, better than uh, not doing anything. So in that case, we're going to compare it to this trivial encoding of the cavity. And this is reasonable because for loss errors, the higher you go up the Fock ladder, the stronger this sort of uh, contribution from the, um, uh, the um, annihilation operator, or, or if you want to think about the Krauss operators, the Krauss operators up there have a, a factor that goes like N. Um, so when you do the trivial encoding and calculate the channel fidelity, you see that it's decreasing with the noise strength. So as the noise gets lower, the channel fidelity is, is uh, in, sorry, the channel infidelity is getting lower, which is good. And so this is our benchmark. We're only interested in when we do better than this. And so you can see here for the cat codes that um, generally below 10 to the minus two, we're doing better. And as we uh, increase the rotation symmetry, we're performing better and better. And we generically expect this to be true to a point because at some point, as you uh, increase the rotation, the rotation symmetry, you're making your wedges in phase space smaller and smaller. And this means that you might start to get, um, the dephasing errors might start to dominate and um, you'll start to see a turnaround. The problem is it's difficult to do these numerics, so um, we haven't fully explored that. And then here's the same plot for binomial codes. You can see that the uh, binomial codes are outperforming uh, the uh, cat codes. Um, so now we compare this to this uh, new optimal recovery. So this is not using our explicit error correction circuit, but the, we solve a semi-definite program which determines the uh, optimal recovery map to apply to the uh, encoded qubit. And what's really surprising is that the uh, explicit error correction circuit that we've given for this channel is performing very close to optimal. It's in some cases like half an order of magnitude off. And we really didn't uh, do a lot to, um, uh, you know, think about clever ways to decode and so on. So there's probably more wiggle room. And so I think this is pretty surprising. Um, how long have we got, Chris? I think it, I'm starting to... Uh, you have at least 10 more minutes. Um... Okay, okay. All right. Um, yeah, so this is, this is pretty cool. I think this is the first example of an explicit error correction circuit for um, these rotation symmetric codes. And we've found that it's uh, pretty close to optimal. So there's many, many things to do. Um, one of the things that um, we've been looking at recently is trying to optimize the inherent phase noise or this, this um, uh, phase uncertainty. And so this is essentially designing uh, different primitives. And I won't go into too many details here, but the plot here, if you look at the, the uh, so these are amplitudes for, um, for plus X eigenstates. So these would be like the plus state for our uh, error correcting codes. And I've gone and calculated the marginal phase distribution. And what's special about the states here is according to the three of us that these states have the minimal variance in the phase observable or the phase um, variable. So that means the second moment here, say in this figure here is as small as possible. And um, so we, we 
have been playing with this recently. So if I just show you some numerics that we have, um, we're not, in, we're not uh, interested in loss in this case, we're just looking at the pure dephasing channel. And we found this curious thing that for, so you know, these other codes are ones that are well known. If you look at this sign code, it's called a sign code because these coefficients are uh, essentially a sinusoid. Um, the sign code has a lower channel infidelity for very large dephasing. So this is um, one of the first instances where um, a new code has outperformed these uh, binomial codes, which is pretty cool. So then we had this idea that maybe we could start looking at a different channel and um, I, I uh, will just briefly explain it here. This channel is actually related to the dephasing channel. This is one way to write the dephasing channel. Um, the dephasing channel is the case where this uh, distribution here is a Gaussian centered around zero. And um, what we realized is that if you consider a code where you um, sort of displace that Gaussian to the left and displace it to the right, so now you have essentially a rotate left and a rotate right channel, um, which is, I've, I've explicitly drawn the Krauss operators here for the simplest case, um, and rerun the numerics, we find that we can get a huge separation between codes that people know, like these cat and binomial codes, which are depicted up here, and these new phase optimized codes. So if you look, say, for example, uh, at this point here, at, um, so this, this uh, so what are we plotting here? This is channel infidelity on the y-axis. On the x-axis is the um, rotation angle as um, a percentage of the largest rotation you could do before you get a logical error. And for this n equals two code, uh, that's pi on two. Um, so if you look here at rotations at about like 0.85, whatever that is, uh, times pi on two, we're seeing for, not for, for this, or maybe this one here, we're seeing one, two, three, four, five, you know, more than five orders of magnitude difference between um, the codes that had been known and the codes that we've designed. And so I think this illustrates one of the things that is really cool about bosonic codes at the moment is really simple ideas you can do can lead to uh, dramatic improvements over what's known. Unfortunately, this is not a channel that anyone cares about, but it's just, it still illustrates that point. Um, okay, so uh, in the last couple of minutes, I might just um, breeze through some updates and, and outlooks for the field in general. So I spoke a little bit about these translation um, translation codes at the start, these GKP codes. And I think there's been really two, uh, two really cool results that have come out of um, actually Australia. Uh, this is work um, that Ben and Giacomo and Nick and Raf and, Al and Angela have done. Um, so the first one shows that the, so the, I guess something that I failed to mention at the start was that one of the reason why people like these GKP codes is that all of the Clifford operations are done with, um, op with uh, Hamiltonians that are most quadratic in the annihilation and creation operator. And for bosonic systems, these are considered the free operations. And what's really cool in this paper that um, Ben's the first author on, uh, they showed that um, the difficult part of GKP, which is making these um, 
magic states the, or these uh, cubic phase states or, or um, few cubic phase gates, which is the sort of uh, non-Gaussian or, or um, it's, it's the, it's the uh, thing that allows them to get universal computation, um, can be done with uh, the, uh, the vacuum state and uh, heterodyne detection. And so this is, this is a really cool result and is a bit of a game changer for um, CV codes. Um, the second thing also from um, uh, Giacomo, Ben and Nick is um, these uh, bosonic, bosonic system sub, uh, subsystem codes. And I think that the name um, uh, is maybe, may, you know, maybe the name could be a, a bit different, but essentially what they're doing is they're taking, if you think of ordinarily you have a quantum operation and you can do a Steinspring dilation, enlarge the Hilbert space by including another system and represent the whole thing unitarily. Um, the equivalent thing is a Nijmark dilation for uh, a larger system, uh, a larger Hilbert space in the same system. So here you might imagine having a qubit and then enlarging, enlarging the Hilbert space to a qubit or a, an oscillator and then representing states and operators on that thing. And so what this paper does is it shows you how to take the continuous variable Hilbert space and decompose it uh, as related to translation symmetric codes and uh, decompose it into a qubit tensor some other stuff. And this has the potential to be a great simulation tool uh, for bosonic codes. And this is because if you think of this error correction circuit that I showed you a few slides ago, um, you know, if you have a Hilbert space of 160 for this first oscillator and 80 and I don't know, 40 for this one, you can see that uh, quickly the simulations become unwieldy and you have to do a lot of tricks in order to, to, to do this. But you might imagine using the kind of tricks developed here that you have a, a practical way to simulate these continuous variable systems. Um, and I should, I should say that this was for translation symmetry and, and, and these guys are working on the case for the rotation symmetric codes too. Um, there's a bunch of big questions. Um, I think, you know, uh, one of the quests in qubit codes is just being to find the best code possible. So you might think that if you just ignore finding codes um, related, uh, inspired by the symmetries of phase space, um, you might be able to find codes that are better than the ones we have. However, the gates might be unnatural. Um, another big question would be thinking about uh, larger codes without um, concatenating them with a qubit codes, such as like a surface code or, or whatever qubit code you're interested in. Um, there's a lot of questions to do with decoding. Um, you don't, um, of course, this is going to be channel specific, but I, I think people really haven't um, thought about this. And then again, there's fault tolerance. In our paper, we covered some ideas that are leading towards fault tolerance and, and other people have thought about this, but I think that it's not really done to the same level that people have been thinking about in the qubit literature. Um, okay, and um, this is my uh, summary slide. So the, the, the new work that um, Anna, Ben and I did was essentially unifying a bunch of new, a bunch of old codes into a framework that, um, that uh, lets us do error correction on any code that has a rotation symmetry. And we gave an explicit error correcting circuit that was close to optimal. 
Um, and uh, I also showed you some preliminary results where by designing new code words, we were able to see five orders of magnitude improvement over the best known codes. Um, so yeah, um, uh, thanks for your attention. <laughs> so enthusiastic. Okay, um, is there any questions from our audience? If you have a question, just go ahead and uh, unmute yourself and uh, interrupt me. Okay, um, because I was going to ask a question myself, um, and it's about these um, these Wigner functions. So you were showing um, you're showing us these Wigner functions. Uh, uh, these ones are. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, these these ones are fine. Yeah. Um, okay. So, I guess, like they can get quite complicated, right? Yeah. Like you. What is like? What is your impression of the utility of these? Like, do you find that it's useful to to look at these, or is it just like a nice no? Picture? I, I just think they're a nice picture. I think there's very little that you can. I mean, okay, here we can see that these Wigner functions have. I mean, you could be fooled, but they have. You could say for sure they have an approximate approximate symmetry, but. Um, you know, I can't tell you the entropy of the states by looking at the Wigner functions. In this case, I can tell you whether there's negativity because I know the normalization of the color map. But yeah, I think that more or less they're just pretty. I don't think there's actually, um, although as you well know, because you've worked on this, that the Wigner function itself is useful for saying things about um, whether things are efficient to simulate or not. Yeah, I guess you, you can find some operational paradigm in which like negativity signals something but here yeah do you suspect that you know you'll need interference or you'll need negativity or anything like that uh i mean abs absolutely i mean i think that you couldn't i'm just trying to think i actually haven't i mean i'm not sure you could make a code word, uh, I don't think you could make a, a subspace that has only positive states, although I don't know that for certain, because mm -hmm. you'd, need to, you'd need to, you know, here's a naive one, is you take superpositions of, cats, of uh, coherent states, coherent states are positively represented, and then you get a Schrodinger cat code, and that has uh, negativity. I'm going right. to make a case for Wigner functions as opposed to the um, uh, the, the the interpretive dance version, um, okay. which is that uh, actually experimentally what you often do is uh, directly related to simple operations in your Wigner function phase space, and in fact, if you want to understand how to create uh, many of these states, like looking at Fox state representations is going to do nothing for you. But uh, if you look at the Wigner function, then you can get, uh, you can actually work out, well, okay, if I do this series of controlled displacements and rotations and so forth in phase space, then I can create uh, something that looks like that state. Um, and that really represents very much, for example, the, the 
the suite of gates available, for example, in these um, uh, Yale experiments um, right. are, are literally, you know, con uh, controlled or designed displacements and rotations in this Wigner function uh, phase space. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, can I ask, uh, so all of the stuff that you've been talking about today, I think, is about how you encode qubits in these higher dimensional systems. Yeah. Um, there, I believe, have been a couple of um, sort of preliminary um, results on how to encode oscillators in oscillator systems. Um, yeah. For example, I think Yang Zhang has a... Uh, yeah. has a nice result on that. Can you comment on how that may or may not relate to some of the sort of phase optimized codes or whatever that you've been talking about today? Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I've certainly seen these papers where they're encoding an oscillator into a collection of oscillators. Um, I haven't looked at the specific encoding. My guess, and I don't know if Ben and Anna are still on the line, uh, is that they're probably thinking about these translation symmetric codes, um, or, or at least some, some, um, some variation of that. And I would guess that they haven't thought about encoding uh, into these um, rotation symmetric codes. I think if you did that, then going the next step and trying to figure out these, like the, the phase optimized versions of that would be, I would guess, relatively straightforward, but I don't know. Because I think that that's actually something potentially interesting to do. Um, you know, if you want to, in, in many physical systems that you might want to study, actually have oscillators uh, in them naturally and converting oscillators to qubits and then encoding qubits is a very, very unwieldy way to go. <laughs> uh, so if you want to build a computer that's um, going to be able to simulate uh, uh, systems that have oscillators in them, then being able to actually encode oscillators in these states is, is a really uh, interesting oh, possibility. Yeah, that's, I hadn't appreciated that. That is quite interesting. I mean, you might imagine that so you, I guess you're saying like, um, if, if you want to do simulation rather than computation and you could then encode uh, an oscillator and set up, you know, interaction so that you're simulating. Um, yeah, that, that's a really right, cool exactly. idea. And I think, you know, one of the big arguments that people have said, oh, but you know, the problem with oscillators is that uh, you'll never be able to make them error correctable. Well, I mean, it, you know, yeah. first of all, people have actually all of this stuff shows that you can will certainly at least create qubit error corrected qubits in oscillators. Right. And if you can start to um, uh, create error corrected um, oscillators and oscillators, then you can start to potentially do some really interesting <clears throat> things, especially I think if you can combine the two and have qubits and oscillators right. in your systems. And, and actually, this is kind of interesting because you might think that, you know, one of the arguments that's made against uh, analog quantum computation is there's no analog classical computation. Um, and I mean, I guess maybe one way of thinking about your point is that here's a way to actually uh, protect and encode analog quantum computation. Right. Yeah. All right. That's a really cool idea. Hi, Josh. Um, Hi. The talk. Um, 
I'm just wondering, you talked about uh, you're using um, sending magic states for doing T-gate, similar to like surface code or something. Do you still have some kind of mad overhead in distillation with that, or is it better or worse than you normally get through the surface code? I personally have not looked at distillation. Um, I think um, Anna may be looking at this uh, with one of his graduate students. Uh, yeah, I don't know how the overhead compares. Okay, thank you. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, that's um, just about an hour. So good timing. Um, yeah, I think in, in, if we were in a room, you would hear a loud and <laughs> amazing clapping for the wonderful performance you gave. Um, so I guess uh, I'll, I'll simulate that for you right now. Oh, thanks, Chris. Woo! <laughs> 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 All right. Thanks a lot, Josh. Okay. Um, thank you. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Bye. Thanks, Josh. Have a good day. Bye.